Thrilled to be back in this letter tonight, studying it with you guys. It's one of the highlights of my week to study together. Um, a sweet letter. You can open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1, just, just beginning our study, so if you're new tonight, you haven't missed much. Um, but jumping back in, and we've seen, as we're kind of wading into this letter, that Peter's writing not just to one church, like some of the other letters, but he's writing to lots of churches, right? He's writing to a lot of churches in Asia Minor, a group of congregations, and they were all experiencing some, some various difficulties. So we're going to see tonight a range of trials. And they were experiencing these trials because of their newfound faith in Christ. They had believed the gospel, they had chosen to follow Christ, and as a result, their lives are now harder than they were before. So Peter wrote this letter to shepherd these congregations. He wanted to stabilize them in their trials. And we saw last week that one of the first things that Peter does, one of the first things he does in this letter is he helps them see that all this persecution, all the various trials, it does not mean, does not mean that God has abandoned them. It doesn't mean that they don't really belong to God. We're all tempted to believe that when we difficulty, uh, especially if it's pretty severe. Where's God? What's he doing? Why is he letting me experience this? Does he really love me? Do I really belong to him? But right here out of the gate, Peter wants us to put all those lies to rest. Okay? Peter tells these, these churches that not only are they not abandoned by God, but the opposite is actually true. Their faith in Christ, the fact that they've believed the gospel, that shows that God has chosen them to be his own children. Peter opens the letter in verse 1 by calling these precious believers the elect, or elect exiles. They're elect, they're God's chosen ones. Ones that God has chosen out for himself to be part of his family. And that means that if you've believed in Jesus, it's because God chose you. It's because he's already made a decision to bring you to himself. In his great love, he chose you and he brought you to life. In Peter's language, he gave you new birth. He caused you to be born again, verse 3. You heard the gospel, you believed it because of this new life that he granted to you. Now again, you don't know what's going on inside you. You just know that your mom or the preacher, whoever was compelling and that you're a sinner, and that you need Christ. And the reason you believed it is because of the new life he granted to you. And now you're alive to God. Now you see the truth is in Jesus. And now you're, you're changing, slowly maybe, but you're changing to become like him. But do you know what that also means? You're elect, but it means now you're in exile. You're different than those around you who are still dead in their sins. You're different from those who still love their sins, those who are still deceived, and they're all around you. In a sense, you don't belong to this dead world anymore. You don't belong here because you're now alive. Or in Peter's words, you're in exile here. You're in a chosen exile. And the exile, the fact that you're in exile means you don't belong here. This cursed world is not your homeland anymore, like it was at one point. You don't identify with those that are opposed to God anymore 
and you belong to the new creation. The new world is coming, and that's your inheritance. But that means, then, that you also have new enemies when we're following Christ. Your election, your new birth, means that you will be opposed here. And that's exactly what these new churches were experiencing. After Peter talks about how blessed they are to be part of the new creation in in the first couple verses, verses 3 through 6 in this opening chapter, he now turns to address their present trials, their trials that are happening now, the trials that result from their new birth. So if you would, let's let's pick it back up. We'll start in verse 3, what we covered last week. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Here's where he turns the corner. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, even though it's tested by fire, that tested genuineness may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." So Peter's turning the corner here in verse 6 to address their trials directly. And Peter understood, and he wanted to make sure his churches understood, that their following Christ also involved a cost. It means that they will have harder lives. So will we. His readers were experiencing various trials, he says, meaning a wide range of trials. He's agreed by various trials. You see that? Verse 6. It's a wide range of them, and it's because of their new birth. And the same is true for us. After you graduate and you hit the workforce, you're going to most likely experience injustice. You might be more qualified than the next guy, but you might get passed over, likely will, because you're a Christian. Or if you do get the job, you'll probably be labeled as judgmental because you won't endorse homosexual behavior. Or you'll get called oppressive because you affirm male and female genders are a biological reality. Or you'll be labeled as misogynistic because you think that men should lead in the church. And we could just keep going, right? Or tensions might develop in your own family because you're seriously approaching the scriptures now because you've been born again. Maybe your extended family might claim to be Christian, but the Bible's not really their authority. They do what they want. They think what they want. They don't go to church. Their lives don't look any different from moral unbelievers. But now, because of your new birth, you're changing, and you're actually submitting to the Scriptures. You want to know what Christ says in His Word. You're trying to follow His commands, and that is going to cause some problems. It will bring some of those various trials Peter's talking about right into your life, through your family. Your parents won't understand They might think you've become too fanatical or too religious. They might start poking fun at you, or they might get offended that you don't enjoy the same things you used to do. You're just not yourself anymore. They might get upset when you try to press in and help them see how their lives are violating what Christ has actually said in the Word. 
The point being, that's trials, various trials are going to come as a result of your new birth. And even at LU, of all places, you might feel like the odd man out or woman because of your new birth. When you're actually trying to follow Christ and be obedient and your friends accuse you of being legalistic. Or when you don't agree with somebody calling anxiety a mental illness and then you're maligned and you're called all sorts of names. Or when you're just trying to make a good, biblically informed decision and your friends think you're unspiritual because you're not like seeking a sign or something, right? Or your friends think you're narrow because you don't appreciate Bethel or Hillsong and you're trying to think critically about that. That's various trials. And beyond all that, it just seems sometimes like the deck is stacked against you. You know what I mean? Your car breaks down during finals. You have a major unexpected expense. Now you're broke again. Family member gets diagnosed with cancer. Someone you love dies unexpectedly. A brother or sister rejects the faith and abandons your family. A friend you trusted stabs you in the back. These are various trials that Peter's talking about here. And Peter's not aloof when it comes to trials. And he's not out of touch with how painful they are, how difficult trials are. I mean, the man watched a number of his friends and fellow believers get killed for the sake of their faith. He himself was beaten, was imprisoned. Eventually, church history says that this Peter was crucified upside down. So he knows how hard trials are. Peter knows how sad the trials can make us feel. He acknowledges that we are literally grieved by various trials, he says in verse 6. We're grieved by them. He knows that trials can rip your heart out. They can keep you up all night. They can make you feel sick to your stomach. They are grieving and sad, and Peter knows it. And because they are, because they're so hard, that's all the more reason we've got to understand what God's doing in these trials. We've got to know how God is using them for his good purposes during our exile here. It's tempting to misinterpret our trials, to think God's against us or to to not be aware of what's going on or somehow God's out to get us. But nothing could be further from the truth, and Peter's going to show us that tonight. Peter's going to give us his perspective on trials, his inspired perspective on trials, we might say, And he's giving it to us for us to be deeply encouraged. As we're going to see, leads to more, this leads to more joy. He wants us to see our trials through his eyes. And he wants you to interpret everything from your flat tire to somebody slandering you for Christ through this lens. Through what he's going to tell us tonight. So, real simple outline. I'm just going to look at six truths about trials. We're just going to glean from from this section in 1 Peter. Six truths about trials. We've got to know these truths. They've got to be firsthand. They've got to be convictional for you. Or you'll be waylaid, right? Like, you have to know these deeply. But these truths will lead to profound joy. Joy that is inexplicable and full of glory, he says, at the end of this paragraph. So, here's the first one. Kind of right out of the gate, we have to know that trials cannot take away our joy. Trials cannot take away Joy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to milk a lot out of this first verse, okay? So, just a heads up, and then we'll cover the rest of them pretty quick at the end, okay? I like to give disclaimers up front, just so people don't get worried 
<laughs> Trials cannot take away our joy. I'm picking this up from the beginning of verse 6 where he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. In this you rejoice. So one of the first truths, really the first implication we see in our text tonight is that we always have a reason to rejoice, even in our trials. And that's because trials, as heart-wrenching as they are, cannot threaten the things that give us ultimate joy. They can't take it away. They can't touch those things. Trials can't. Now let me unpack this for you so you can see where I'm getting this, uh, this truth. If you remember back to last week, I said that this entire section, starting in verse 3, okay, see it? Verse 3, running all the way down to verse 12, is one long sentence in Greek. And that means that in some sense, everything Peter's saying here, he wants us to see it together. Because he didn't obviously break the sentence. He wants us to see this as belonging together. One thought leads to another thought here. And so when we jump into verse 6... We're in the middle of his thought, okay? Kind of right in the middle. And most of our English translations translate that it's an independent thought, and that's good. I think it makes sense to us. But it's helpful to know that, that we're right in the middle of his thought. So when he says, in this you rejoice, he's talking about everything he just told us. Everything he just said. You rejoice in everything I just described. And that was last week's message, right? So what was that, if you weren't here? Well, Peter has just described the glory of our new birth. He's described all the benefits that come with being born again. And he says, because we've experienced this new birth, a conversion to Christ, we have a living hope, he says, meaning we have a hope that that we will be resurrected one day. We don't have to be afraid of death anymore because that is not the end for us. We will have resurrection life. We will be raised to live forever in glorified bodies. And we'll have a land to go with it, he says. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. He's talking about the new earth that's coming. We're going to reign forever with Christ there in his kingdom. And it's in this, he says, in, in these glorious realities, this thumbnail sketch of all God has done for you, that's what you rejoice in, in these benefits. Rejoice. In this we rejoice, he says. And we rejoice even though we're suffering now. Meaning the truths he just described are like a constant stream that's sort of always bubbling up out of the ground, a constant source of water, a constant well that never runs dry. You can always go back to it and you can always drink. No matter what's going on. So if you were to rewind the clock and go back to ancient, ancient times, um, kings built cities around a spring of water and they usually built their castles in the keep, you know, right, on, right in the, the middle of the castle, right on top of that spring. Any guesses why they did that? <laughs> keep the water to themselves? Well, if you're getting attacked by the enemy and they're besieging you around the thing, it's very important that you have a water source. So if they cut off your water supply, you still got one bubbling up from the ground right there in the middle of your, of your city and your castle in particular. And that's a helpful picture for us when it comes to like the onslaughts that we face. When our trials sort of besiege us, Peter's saying we have a water source, a source of joy inside the castle. We've got a source of joy we can always run to, something to always rejoice in, even if our trials end our earthly lives. Guess what? We're coming back from the dead. 
We're coming back to reign. Even if they take away our property, even if they disinherit us, guess what? We own this place in its renewed form. We will receive it as part of our inheritance, as part of the family of God. That is an eternal source of joy that trials cannot touch. Do trials make us sad? Yes. Do they sometimes rip our hearts out? Yes. Can they impact how we feel? Yes. But one thing they do is that often, sometimes, I'll be worked up over trial, and then I'll realize that the Lord is driving me back to those ultimate things. Back to the spring, so to speak. Back to the new birth, hoping in an inheritance is coming. Causing me to see beyond the horizon. And I've told many of you this before and said it in several messages, but sometimes, you know, when Mary and I are in the foxhole of a, of a trial, you know, and it's, it feels like we're getting waylaid, it's like we say to each other, the big things haven't changed. The big things have not changed. Our lives might feel upended, but the big things, the most important things, are just as fixed today as they were before the trial. You might not know where you're going after you graduate. But you know you're going to end up in a new creation. That's fixed. You might not know how the surgery is going to turn out, but you know that you will be resurrected. You may feel incredibly lonely and wonder if you will ever get married, but you know that you will experience relationships with Christ and his people with an intimacy that will far eclipse marriage one day. Those are big things that do not change, that trials cannot touch, We have a spring of truth inside the castle walls when the enemies attack. And so in the trial, go drink. Go back to those truths. Take heart and rejoice. But that's not all all Peter says about these trials and how we should think about our trials. There's another truth that we can draw out of this verse, and it's this. We can say it like this. Trials must be expected. Trials must be expected. You're writing it down. Maybe you haven't processed it yet. But you might be thinking, huh? Where's he getting that from? You see that little word now? If you quickly read this verse, you might just miss it altogether. He says, we rejoice, though now, and he says some other stuff, though now we are grieved by various trials. All right, stop writing for a second. Do you see that? See the word? never tell if I'm like moving too quickly or not because you guys are always writing. It's good. I'm glad you're writing. But what does he mean when he says now you're grieved by various trials? Right now. Is he, is he, is he saying he, what Peter is saying is that right now is the time for trials. Meaning these last days that we're living in. The last days that we're living in. The Messiah has come And he's brought in the last days. That's what the Old Testament would would call it. Kind of the end of the age is sort of upon us. This age. Before the new age that's coming with with the new creation. We're at the end of that period. And that end of that period started with the return, with the with the first coming of Christ. So down in verse 20 of the same chapter, he makes this clear. He says, He, Christ, verse 20 was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest, here it is, in the last times. Do you see that? He was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. 
He was made manifest. He was revealed, Peter says, in these last times. It's sort of a technical phrase, okay? If you know your Old Testament, then you're going to know that the last days in the prophets are a time of increased difficulty for God's people. Messiah is revealed, and his enemies rise up against him, and according to Daniel and other places, they kill him. And then all who follow the Messiah, the saints, at the end of that age, in these last days, can expect the same trials. They also get killed, Daniel 7. So that means all who follow the Messiah at the end of this age can expect the same trials. And Peter's point is that this is the time that we're living in right now. Now's that time. Now is not a time for ease for God's people, we could say. Now is not a time of evident victory for God's saints. It is a time of opposition. It's a time when many antichrists, to use John's language in 1 John chapter 2, many antichrists are making war against the saints. And as exiles, we have to brace ourselves for this. Later in this letter, Peter's going to encourage us not to be surprised when the trial hits. And he says, don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. Something strange. Why is that? Because, because the end is upon us, he says later in chapter 4. What's his point? We have to expect trials because now's the time for them. We're in the last days. Now, you're thinking, man, why are you ramming this home? Well, because, I, mean, I don't know about you, but my default expectation is that my life should be easy. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> my life should be easy and not hard. When my life is hard, something is wrong. When life doesn't go smoothly, we think something is bad wrong. But we need to actually reverse that. We need to think when life goes smoothly, praise God. <laughs> it's working counter to what it, should be, what it should be doing right now. Life should be difficult at some level. We should expect to be opposed. We're in the last days, after all, in the days right before Christ establishes his new creation, and our enemies are doing their worst. But now, another thing to, to notice about this now time, this time of the last days, is that, mercifully, it is short. It's really short, actually, compared to what's coming. And so that leads us to our third truth. We have to know that trials will not last forever. If we're Christians, trials won't last forever. Peter says... That these trials are just for a little while. We've been grieved now, yes, in these last days, but they're just for a little while. And that's super helpful. Super helpful. His point is that however crushing your trial is right now, it won't always be that way. The pain will not last forever. The loneliness won't persist. The uncertainty will end. The chronic pain, the multiple surgeries, the mockery in class, the tensions with unbelieving family, it won't be that way forever. In fact, it's only for a short time, a very short time, soon to be eclipsed by a glorious new eternal age. And sometimes in Scripture, our sufferings are compared, the, one of the illustrations Scripture gives is to, to childbirth, or the pains of childbirth. Now, now the you men will never experience this. And most of you never have, even if you are not male. But not to scare you, but it's intense. 
Okay? It's intense. And it's tempting to think, when you're in the throes of the pains of childbirth, that it will never end. But it's wild, okay? Because the moment the child is born, from the husband's perspective, I'm thinking, wife's going to die, right? And then the moment this child is born, my wife describes it like a complete transformation. The pain subsides and overwhelming joy takes its place. The pain's immediately eclipsed, like almost instantly, with profound and lasting happiness. Now, today, in our lives, we, we rarely, I mean, at least me, I don't ever think about those pains of childbirth. My wife sometimes does. But in, in relationship to our children and the joy they bring us, I mean, we, we almost never think about that. That was so short compared to the joy that we have now with our children. And guys, do you understand your trials are only for a little while? Peter says a short time compared to the eternal new earth, compared to our inheritance and our enjoyment of it in the land. Our trials, our sufferings will seem like a blip on the screen. And that's so helpful when you come back to that when you're in a trial. This will not be this way forever. But you might be thinking, well, why don't we just skip the sufferings, right? Like, why don't just God just save us and then send us to glory? Like, skipping the hard part of, of these, these trials. Like, why do, we, why do we need to endure trials? Like, what's, what's going on there? Well, that's a huge question and one that I'm still gnawing on right now. But Peter gives us a hint. He says, in some mysterious sense, Peter implies that our trials are actually necessary. Our trials are necessary. He says we've been grieved, if necessary, by these various trials. Peter here is implying by this little phrase, he's going to flesh this out a lot more in the rest of the letter, but in this little phrase, he is implying that our trials are in some mysterious sense a necessity. They're necessary for us to fulfill God's plan. Now, now you might be really scratching your head. Okay, like what, <clears throat> what does that mean? How does that work? Well, if you rewind all the way back to God's original purpose in creation, take it all the way back to first chapters of Genesis, you'll remember that, that God created us humans as faithful covenant partners. Remember that? Like he's got a purpose for creation and he's using humans to fulfill that purpose. He created us in his image to be fruitful and multiply, to extend his people in his image, to take dominion over all the earth. He wanted us to extend his blessing over all creation. In other words, what I'm trying to draw out here is that God's purpose for creation involved faithful humans. But Adam's loyalty, his faithfulness, was tested in Genesis 3. He failed the test. And instead of spreading God's blessing, he spread curse to all creation. Instead of being faithful, killing the snake, whatever, throwing him out, exercising dominion, and then giving, being given the right to eat of the tree of life, he was unfaithful, and he was expelled from the garden, specifically not to eat of the tree of life. But God was not through with the mission, obviously. In spite of this unfaithful covenant partner, in spite of his unfaithful humanity that he had created, God was committed to one day reversing that curse through a faithful covenant partner and restoring faithfulness to his people. 
But as time went on in the biblical story, God reestablished this covenant again and again at different points and with different iterations as it, as it developed through the story. First, he, started, he reestablished it with Noah. When Noah was tested, he failed too. The same is true of Abraham, the people of Israel at Sinai, David. It came closest in Solomon to being a, a faithful covenant partner. But even he failed the faithfulness test royally. They all failed in some, or was at least a mixed bag, until one day God sent Jesus to be that faithful covenant son. And he was fully obedient. And get this, he proved it through his testing. The testing was necessary. When he was tested as the final Adam, he was tested initially in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry, and then again in a garden just before the cross at the end of his ministry. And he endured the onslaught of testing from that ancient snake. And his suffering then was his necessary testing. It was necessary to prove his faithfulness in the fulfillment of Scripture. He stood faithful unto death, and he proved himself through the test as the faithful covenant son. He was raised as a result and given a kingdom because of his faithfulness, because he passed the test. And the good news of the gospel is that, right? When we trust in Jesus, we are forgiven, yes, but we are also given his faithfulness as a gift. We're incorporated into Christ, the true son, the faithful covenant partner, who absorbed all the curses and earned all the blessings. His faithfulness becomes our faithfulness even though we have been unfaithful. And that is a tremendous grace. But that is not all. Do you realize that part of the Messiah's work is to raise up a people who are faithful like Him? To raise up His people to pass the test. Like our Messiah, it is necessary for us to prove our faithfulness too, just like he did. Not in the same capacity. But the Old Testament predicts that God's people will be refined through the fires of affliction too, not just their Messiah. The Old Testament predicts that we will overcome too if we're faithful unto death. And in fact, an interesting text, kind of in light of that principle in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, an interesting text It's what Jesus says to the churches in the first chapters of Revelation. And he says it at the end of every single church of the seven churches. Something similar to this. In those chapters, Jesus addresses seven individual churches and either affirms them or corrects them. But in all of them, he calls them to endure the tests that are coming. And at the end of his encouragements to each church, he says something similar. He says, to the one who conquers, I will something, right? I'll give them something. I'll give them life. So he says, to the one who conquers, I will blank. Meaning, the one who endures, the one who doesn't give in, the one who keeps trusting me to the end, the one who conquers, I will give some blessing. Now look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Time out. Okay, let's 
unpack that. To the one who conquers, this is to Christians, to the one who endures, I will give the right, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now that is super interesting. Adam failed the test and he didn't get to eat. If we pass the test, Jesus says, we get to eat. Now the point here is not, not that we are earning our salvation. That cuts against the grain of all of John's theology, okay? Who wrote Revelation. That's not his point. Jesus is strengthening us to be faithful. The point here is that suffering and enduring is our necessary path too, not just Jesus's. It's our necessary testing too as God's covenant partner. He calls us to endure and then he empowers us to do it. He empowers us to pass the test. It's all of his grace in the end. It's how he shows his power as he progressively makes us more and more faithful in this life and ultimately more faithful in glorification, perfectly faithful in glorification. And it shows his glory as we withstand that onslaught, as we, as we double down and we're faithful for something greater, something we can't see yet. We love a person who's invisible. We're trusting a Christ we've never seen. And we're willing to endure to the end for his sake. The trials are part of us showing Christ's power in us as he makes us faithful. And they are the necessary testing ground for our faith. And according to this text, we'll be rewarded with eternal life. And now speaking of that, that's exactly where Peter goes next in verse 7. Not only are these trials necessary, but the trials have a divine purpose in our lives. That's our fifth truth tonight about trials. We could say trials refine and reveal our faith. Trials refine... And they reveal our faith. Look in verse 7. He says, We've been grieved by these trials so that, there's a purpose, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, let's skip this phrase, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a purpose, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, parenthesis, more, per- more precious than gold that perishes as tested by fire, in parenthesis, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter's point here is that our afflictions are not haphazard or random. They are under his ultimate control and they serve his good purposes in our lives. They are the necessary part of both refining our faith and revealing it. It's necessary to show our faith to be the real deal. Now, let me point out something that's kind of subtle here, but I want you to see it because it's very encouraging. Notice the grammar, what Peter actually says here. He doesn't say explicitly that the purpose of the trial is to refine our faith, even though that's definitely implied here. Okay? He doesn't say it's so that your faith is refined. He says it's so that the faith's genuineness may be revealed. There's a subtle difference here. He's saying our faith, the, the point of the trial ultimately is to show that our faith is the real deal. The implication is that, here's where it's encouraging, is that the trial cannot burn up your faith. It can only reveal it to be real. Now that's incredible. That's so encouraging. Because remember last week, the whole reason we even have faith, this precious faith in the first place, the whole reason we've 
realize that Christ is the Son of God and that we're sinners and we need Him is because God gave us new birth. He gave us spiritual life, and the first breath we took was the breath of faith. It was a newborn baby. You're thinking, that's faith, right? Like, I'm alive, like, trusting Christ. He gave us life, and we exercised faith. And then in verse 5, Peter told us that not only did he give us our faith, but God's guarding our faith. Remember that? By his divine power, he's keeping us believing. Our faith is literally indestructible. It's given to us by God in the first place, and God's power is guarding it in the second place. And that means then that the trial, the trial in God's good hands is not going to extinguish your faith. And that's not because of you. It's because God's keeping you. All the trial is doing is it's purifying your faith. It's purifying it now. It's strengthening it now. And it's burning off all of the impurities now. And it's ultimately, the point is that it's revealing that it's the real deal at the end. That it came from God and it was sustained by God. And that's why Peter says it results in praise and glory and honor when Christ returns. Because God himself has made us into these faithful covenant partners. God himself has empowered us to withstand the test and to prove our faithfulness through the trial. That is incredible. Now, you might be thinking, all right, but we're a mixed bag, right? Like, we're not always faithful in the trials. Like sometimes we fall, we fail, we get back up. That's right. It's not perfect, it's not perfect faithfulness, but it's, it's the direction of faithfulness. You know, we get back up, we repent. And you might be thinking, all right, well, I see how trials reveal whether somebody has real faith or not, but help me understand how this trial, how a trial purifies our faith. How does that work? What's going on there? Well, let's take that little parenthesis that Peter gave us in the text here, and he'll, he'll give us, he gives us an illustration, and I think it's helpful. He compares our faith to what? Gold. There we go. Not a trick question. Right there. If you can read, you can get it. Gold often had other less valuable metals mixed in with it, okay? And when the the refiner's fire got to a certain temperature, it started burning off all that dross, all those impure metals, and it left behind the purest of gold. That's kind of the idea of refining. Now, the implication of the metaphor is that trials do the same thing to our faith. They purify the faith. They kind of burn the dross out of it. Now, Admittedly, Peter seems to be aware that the analogy itself breaks down because he, he, he says even that, that even though gold's valuable, he says our faith is more valuable than gold. It's a difference, and that's actually worth thinking about, by the way. Um, and not only is it more valuable, but it's also more durable than gold. He says gold per- perishes. Gold burns, burns up with enough heat, but our faith will never burn up. That's the implication. Trials can't get hot enough to completely melt our faith. All right, but back to the metaphor. How do trials purify our faith? Here's how it works, okay? Many times, our faith in Christ, our hope in Christ is a mixed bag. Like, it's it's mixed with faith in other things, too. Like, right? So one moment we're trusting Christ, next moment we're trusting something else. One moment we're hoping in Christ, next moment we're hoping in something else. Kind of the nature of the Christian life. We're, We're battling these things. Last week we talked about having false hopes and slipping into that. Sometimes they're subtle. Well, when the trial comes, it challenges the thing we're hoping in. Right? It like rattles that thing. 
Maybe I've begun to hope more in the pleasures of an easy life than in the coming of the new creation. And then my kids have a rough day behaviorally and they test every limit I have. What's going on? My hopes are being challenged and exposed in that moment. The trial of misbehaving kids, if we can call it that, all right, it's forcing me to realign my hopes and to set my faith in Christ and to parent from his perspective and not my perspective. The trial drives me back to the truth. It drives me back to depending on Christ for changing my kids. It drives me back to seeking to be faithful as a parent and not trying to manufacture results, right? Like, that's what the trial does. It realigns my perspective from, I want to have an easy life, to, I want to be faithful. I want this to count. The trial is refining my faith. It's purifying. God's using it to help me trust more exclusively in Scripture and to know to run back to the Scriptures and depend on the Scriptures rather than blank. And do you know what that kind of refinement does? As the Lord's bringing various trials into our lives, day in and day out, it actually increases both our love for Christ and our joy in Christ today. As Peter wraps up this section, that's exactly what he ends with. He says that trials increase our love and joy. Ultimately, by doing everything else trials do, it ends with, it sort of culminates in this life, in our love and our joy being increased. Now again, remember, this is one big sentence, so we're still in the sentence. He says, though you have not seen him, verse 8, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice. That's the other main verb, love and rejoice. You rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, what I'm doing here is I'm drawing a connection that's implied from the context, okay? So you seminary students here, ask me about this later, okay? Others can ask me about it too. It's a joke, okay? All right, um, it's an implied connection between trials and our love and our joy in Christ. You see, Christ is the, is the object of our love here in this text, and he's the object of our, of our joy. Or he's, the, he's the source of our joy. We, we rejoice in him, and we love him. And there's a connection here between the trials that he just talked about and this devotion to Christ and their joy in Christ. They love him and they trust him and they rejoice in him, even though they didn't see him. They never, they never witnessed Christ's ministry on earth like Peter had. And so this is a beautiful thing that's happening. And since this love and joy is flowing from that previous verse, I think he's implying the trials, by purifying their faith, have actually increased their love and their joy for the unseen Christ. You tracking? All right. Either not tracking, asleep, or writing. Let me say it backwards. Maybe it'll help. How many of you have read this verse and thought, like, I want this unspeakable joy? You ever thought that? Right? And then you're like, crash, because you're like, I don't have that unspeakable joy. Right? I want to love Christ, but ah, I don't love Christ like that. I don't rejoice like unspeakable and full of glory. So if you back up, why don't you do that? What would the problem be? Weak faith, mixed faith, false hopes. So how do we deal with those? Trials. 
right? The trials are realigning our hopes. Trials help with that. They purify our faith. And so there's the connection. Trials, ultimately, if, if, if we yield to them, trials will refine our faith, and that refinement will lead to more devotion to Christ and more joy in Him like these believers experienced. So do you know what that means? It means that your trials, from the greatest to the smallest, are designed by God for our truest, most profound joy. A joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. They're designed to make you even more lovingly devoted to the Christ that you can't see. That's God's heart behind the trials even if they seem super severe in the moment. He's after your joy, and profoundly so. And So have you ever noticed that those Christians who have submitted to God in suffering, they seem to be the most happy people on the planet? You ever notice that? It's just like, it like defies everything. You're like, what? Like your cancer riddles your body, or man, that that believer over there suffered in concentration camps, and you read the books, the biographies, or whatever, and it's just like they can't, they can't contain the amount of joy that they have. It's just like it's otherworldly, you know? And if we don't get this connection, we, that won't make sense to us. These people have suffered a lot compared to others, and yet they beam with joy, a joy that really is inexpressible and full of glory. Why is that? It's because the refiner has purified their faith through trials. They trust God more fully. They more freely embrace His promises. They more consistently yield to His commands without question. Why? Because their faith has been refined and they are happy in Christ and they are devoted to Christ. Peter's going to go on to say in this letter that those who suffer in the flesh have ceased from sin. That verse also won't make sense unless you understand what we're saying right here. Suffering brings happiness in Christ and devotion to Him. God pours on the joy in the human heart when we yield to him in our trials. And so as we wrap up tonight, just take a step back, okay? Ask yourself, how do I view the difficulties in my life? Don't think you've got to be martyred upside down, okay? Like this, the various trials. How do you view your daily irritations? How are you thinking about those heart-wrenching circumstances on the other side of that spectrum? How are you seeing those crushing burdens? Are you seeing them through Peter's inspired eyes, we could say? Or are you facing those circumstances in your own wisdom? Let what Peter's told us tonight inform your perspective. It's the only way to stand firm in this hostile world. It's the only way to survive it as an exile, right? You have to think like this. It's the way that elect exiles have to think. So I just encourage you, work through your trying circumstances this week before the Lord in prayer. Like, list them out. And take this, these points from this text and turn those into prayers before the Lord with those circumstances, right? Lord, I know, number three, this trial won't last forever. I'm tempted to believe it will. Help me to remember that this thing is short. It's going to be over before I know it. I'm going to wake up one day and I'm going to be in the new creation. Turn these points before him into prayer and, and work to trace out his good hand in your life in those, in those trials and yield to him in those, those, those difficulties. And as you do that, day by day, 
there will be an increase of unspeakable joy in your heart over time because Christ is going to pour it on. It won't happen all at once, but it will come. And that is good news. Amen? Let's pray. Father, each time we finish your word, we're um, just aware of how profound the truth is and how life-changing it is for us. We're so thankful that you've granted faith, that our faith's indestructible, not because we're powerful, but because Christ has us. Thank you for guarding our faith. Thank you for even the trials that strengthen our faith and purify our faith. Our faith is the most important thing, the most precious thing, the most valuable thing about who we are. And you are committed to strengthening it, to helping us see that it's, that it's legit, and to rewarding us for it on that final day. So we're thankful for your shepherding of us. We're thankful for even our trials. We pray that you would help us to align our hearts with you and to, that you would pour out your, your joy unspeakable in our hearts. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.